Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm really excited about tonight. You know, I, we've been talking about all sorts of classic cult and current films of late, many of which I approach as simply a super fan. But occasionally I get to uh, kind of talk about a project that I had a personal involvement on, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but our focus tonight will be on the Porky series. And my special guest is actor Mark Harrier. Hi, Mark. Hey there. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. This is this fun for me. Um, it, it doesn't seem like 40 years. Uh, huh. I actually, it's kind of scary to even say that because you, you, as you know, sometimes when you work on films, it's, it's not as distant a memory because it's such an indelible memory. Well, I, I won't argue with that, but yeah, I felt every one of those 40 years being a grandfather now twice. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm still in the moment, but yeah, time has passed. No, time has passed. I know, I know we're not in our 20s anymore or even our 30s. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm the only one actually who wound up in their 30s. No, wait, um, Scott was a year older than me. I did. I was 27 during Porky's one, and by the time we did Porky's three, I was 30, playing a high school uh, student. So we were a little long in the tooth, but uh, we got there nonetheless. Well, I remember Dan Monahan telling me that uh, every day that everybody would check their hairlines to make huh. sure they weren't <laughs> losing too much hair. Um, so yeah. you're, let's talk a little bit about you. I mean, um, you're a California na native. You were born in Lompoc. Uh, was your dad in the Air Force? Okay. First of all, it's Lompoc. Okay. So <laughs> it's Lompoc. And Lompoc. I don't want to have to come and take you out, but it, it, all of us born and raised in the fine city of Lompoc, because of W.C. Fields, who did a movie called The Bank Dick, and he called it Lompoc. Um, <laughs> for generations, people have been calling it Lompoc, which is fighting words for those of us born and raised there. So that's that. And you won't ever say that again, Stevie. You won't ever say that again. I am a Lompoc <laughs> convert. Thank you. Yeah, aficionado. Thank you. I'm aficionado. Uh, as to my great father my wonderful father. He was not in the Air Force, and now it's called the Vandenberg Space Force Base, which is ludicrous, but we won't get into that. But my father worked for the city of Lompoc. My father actually was the operator of the Lompoc landfill, which is a nice way of saying my dad ran the dump. And so I am the proud son and proud blue-collar boy um, to this day, and Lompoc is in one of the richest counties in, in um, California. It's in Santa Barbara County, but we are the blue collar part of that county, and we're the ones who do all of the work that all of the wealthier people get benefit from, 
But yeah, my dad, I was proud of him. He uh, <laughs> ran the landfill. He got numerous awards from the county and the state. And I was a lucky guy. I'll bet, I'll bet. And um, were you, um... Were you an early thespian? Did, did the dramatic calling come to you at a young age? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, there's a theater called the Lompoc Theater, which is not surprising, uh, that I went to. And my mother drug me there uh, to see a movie that she really wanted to see. And I didn't really want to see it, but she wanted me to go. So I went, it was called The Music Man with a great musical with Robert Preston. Um, as in those days, you know, in a walk-in movie, you would sometimes arrive late, but but you could stay and see the next show and, and see what you had missed at the beginning. I insisted that we see that movie twice after not wanting to go. Bob Preston's performance literally changed my life. When I saw him do that role, I said, that, I'm 10 years old, that, that's what I want to do. And from that point on, I never looked back. I was lucky enough to uh, be within proximity of the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, uh, still to this day, a wonderful institution in Santa Maria, California. Uh, I went there during a golden age when the best directors and the best uh, actors and Robin Williams spent a summer there and it was just really an amazing uh, congregation of talent, young talent. All, a lot of us went on to have wonderful careers. There are many Tony Awards, there's a Pulitzer Prize, there's an Oscar, there's all sorts of things from this group about a 10-year magical period that I happened to be there at part of that time. So yeah, I wanted to be an actor as long as I can remember and was lucky enough to be able to do that. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to the 1980s. Uh, well, actually, the late 1970s, um, we have Animal House came out, was a huge hit. Uh, the era of the irreverent comedy was on tap uh with overhe overheated teenagers and uh you know american graffiti was about the same period and then um this wonderful director bob clark uh who i guess based a lot of the incidents of porkies on some of the things that happened to him in high school brings us this this crazy porkies movie uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into that. I mean, how does a guy from Lompoc end good, good, up good in a job. project? Thank you. Ends up in a project engineered out of Canada because every U.S. distributor had turned it down. Um, walk us through how you got into this. Um, well. I was uh, madly in love with a Latina who uh, was cast in a Broadway show. And so I followed her to New York and uh, I had $1,300 saved, which I thought was a fortune. It lasted me about a month. And so, uh, as I mentioned the PCPA before, one of my best friends, still is, was Boyd Gaines, uh, who, 
wound up uh, in Porky's. He plays the coach with Lassie in the famous scene and has arguably the funniest scene in the movie when he's uh, talking about uh, doing a police sketch artist of uh, Wyatt's schlong. But um, anyway, he was a good friend. And he, I get a call one day and he says, uh, they want me to audition for this movie, but they want to put me to prepare a scene with someone else. Do you want to do it with me? And I said, well, sure. Um, I had had good luck in New York. I was actually on Broadway at the time in, in the revival of Brigadoon. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come. And so we go oh, there. Wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. You, you gotta, you, I got to stop you there because Brigadoon is one of my favorite shows. What part I, were you playing? I was playing, well... I wanted to play, I was uh, understudy for Jeff, which I went on, he's the second lead, and I was Frank the bartender. Um, and uh, it was great because we had a wonderful tour. And so, and I'd only been in New York for, I followed my girlfriend and I had only been in town for five weeks and I was on Broadway, so it was pretty. Oh, that's very exciting, okay. Yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, so uh, Boyd has me come and read the scene. And, you know, being born and raised in Lompoc, California, uh, that famous picture of the, during the, um, the Dust Bowl era and the Grapes of Wrath era, um, there's a picture of a woman clutching her two children and she just is, it's a, it's a, it's a famous American photograph of, of, of anxiety and angst and depicts that period better than any other. It was in Napomo, which is just down the road from, or up the road from Lompoc. And so that's a long-winded explanation as that there were a lot of Grapes of Wrath people in the central coast of California. They all came to escape. So let's get back to um, reading the okay. scene with, uh, with Boyd. Yeah, so reading the scene with Boyd. Uh, I come from the central coast, which had a lot of, Oaky and Arky influence from the Grapes of Wrath era. All of those people who were escaping the Dust Bowl came to California and essentially became indentured servants and sharecroppers and worked. It, it's not a pretty thing, but a lot of them stayed. They it all got better, and so there's that Arky and Oaky accent that. I grew up with, and it was not so hard to kind of, you know, emulate when I was talking. And so um, I go to this audition with Boyd, and Boyd's originally from Georgia, so a Southern accent is right in his wheelhouse as well. And so we just start playing the scene, and I remember that, uh, I don't remember who was auditioning us, but it was in a suite at the Mayfair Hotel on Central Park in... New York City, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Gary Gotch, who was one of the producers, Bob Clark, and one other guy pokes their head out of the bedroom when Boyd and I start doing the scene. And so we do our scene, and I guess we did pretty well. And so uh, we both got callbacks, and the callback was in Central Park itself, at a basketball court in Central Park. Well, I can shoot a little hoop. And so I was draining, you know, 20 footers and uh, we just kept going. And apparently they had offered the role of Tommy, which Wyatt Knight played 
to uh, Dennis Quaid. And if Dennis Quaid had have accepted the role, then it would have bumped the various cast members and I would not have been cast. But um, Dennis turned it down. And so Wyatt Knight played Tommy and then I wound up playing Billy and uh, it was like uh, pretty amazing. So it was great. That's that's great. Now, when did you d discover that the name of the project was Porky's? Uh, not during audition or did you? Um, I don't recall. I do remember getting the script and I think it, the script definitely said Porky's. And I read it and my girlfriend read it. And after she had finished reading it, she said, you can't do this. <laughs> you must not do this. This is the worst horrible, misogynistic, you can't do this. And I'm like going, they're, they're offering me a movie, a feature film. How could I not do it? I won the argument, and uh, but it wasn't, uh, she wasn't totally wrong because the script as it was originally written was even more so than the movie wound up being in terms of just, grossness and sexist and all of that. Um, all of us who got cast, and many of us came from a theater background, Dan Monahan had been from the theater, Wyatt and Cyril had had some uh, theater experience. Um, we knew that we had to uh, help this out a bit. And so we did two things. And Bob, bless his heart, was amenable to both of them. We uh, didn't rewrite it, but we um, made it, he got the point he wanted to get across, we just made it a little less um, obvious. Um, and that was one thing that we did, and I think it benefited the, the script quite a lot. But the main thing we did, and I think it's why it wound up being so successful, is we knew that all of this depended on the fact that all these guys grew up together, knew each other their whole lives, went to high school, and that they were, they, they knew, they could finish each other's lines and knew what the other was thinking. Well, we didn't have enough time to get there unless we all lived together during the entire shoot. And so we did that. We found a house on College Avenue, well, actually on Miami Beach, literally on Miami Beach. It was a big sprawling house that had, you know, it was like the Winchester house right on the beach. And all of us could live there. Um, I don't think Scott lived there, but but the, the main six guys, we, we, all of us were there. Uh, Dan and Boyd and Wyatt and Tony and, my, and uh, Cyril and myself. Um, all were there. And so we lived together, we ate together, we went to the set together, and we grew to love each other to this day. And um, I think that was that was a, a good call. And it really, I think, added to how the movie turned out. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Porky's, and are going to have to revisit it. Um, this was a very, very well-produced film. You know, uh, 
Well, in rewatching it recently, uh, I thought that um, just the production values, just the way it was shot, the cinematography, you know, obviously in a movie like this, no one talks about cinematography. And yet the cinematography was very good. And I thought that the uh, uh, the film was was done very, very well. I mean, it, it's not a, you know, this movie was not thrown together. I think Bob Clark put a lot of effort into it. I think it's a cinematographer, is it Harold Faltemeyer? Was that Mark? Is that right? Harold was, was uh, I know he was our lead um, cameraman and I maybe he was the cinematographer as well. But yeah, Harold was great, German. And um, it was my first movie. Uh, and some of these guys had been in things before and, and Scott was just coming off a huge hit, Caddyshack. Tony was coming off a, a cult classic that became a bit of a hit called The Wanderers. So I was the uh, virgin, I think, in terms of film work. And so I, uh, <laughs> I was constantly, Harold would constantly go uh, back up. I was always in the back because I was tall. And he always was trying, you know, I had to, it, it took me a week or two, but I finally, okay, there's a camera frame and there's a whole thing and I'm just not, I, I, I have to think of this in a whole different way. And I got there and he and I became pretty good friends. Harold was the camera operator. It was actually Reggie Morris. Yeah, Reggie, Canadian. Reggie, good Canadian guy. Um, right. Yeah, but Harold, Harold did a lot of the, Harold was the one who was explaining to me in his not so subtle German fashion that I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of the world of film. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was a learning experience, but I learned really fast. So it was great. I liked Harold a lot. So you're working on a film with naked women and people getting their penises pulled on. Uh, there's a lot of outrageous stuff. Uh, you're you're taking all your clothes off while a hooker uh, evaluates everyone. Um, what what was <laughs> what was the general feeling on this? Were you were you, at times you were thinking that uh, uh, is anyone ever going to see this movie? Is it too outrageous? I mean, what was your feeling during the making? Well, uh, I in all three movies was never naked. So I did not have the same sort of angst about it as, oh, say, my good friend Dan Monaghan, where Pee-wee was butt-ass naked frequently, early and often throughout all of the films. Um, but, but most of the guys were naked. Uh, on the third one, I actually had a body double to uh, represent me getting out of a pool. But uh, Tony Ganos, I think, said it best he the mantra on the set was being naked sucks and that sort of became the, the the mantra and never truer words were never spoken than being naked sucks but luckily i was not one of the guys who ever had to be naked it was good for me and i think good for the movie audience as well that i was uh, never naked so so I'm well, going to, yeah, I was around naked people all the time. So, yeah. So I'm going to mention the guys and you give me a few choice uh, thoughts about them just as 
as people and as your filmmates, just tell me a little bit about what you remember, like about Dan. Uh, Dan um, remains one of my best friends. Um, Dan and I, after we did Porky's One, wound up uh, getting an apartment together in um, Manhattan uh, and sort of were roommates for at least a year I, until I, um, the, the, what I did with my money from the first one is I bought a co-op in, in uh, Manhattan. Um, but for about a year, uh, he and I were roommates and that was, that was a great deal of fun. And we still, you know, we text each other all the time, talk to each other all the time. We became uh, very good friends and remain so today. He's moving, he, he was in LA, he moved to Scottsdale. Now he's moving to Philadelphia of all places. He's following his grandchild. <laughs> That's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about Wyatt. That's harder. Um, love Wyatt. We'll always love Wyatt. Um, he, uh, the three of us, uh, Dan, Wyatt, and I became extremely close. We all got married within, uh, three, you know, I got married one month, Dan got married, and then Wyatt got married the, the month after that. And our kids were all born within three months of each other, one after the other. So we were extremely, extremely close. Um, I was in a fairly serious auto accident about 10 years ago. Wyatt had just moved uh, to Maui and was living with a friend there. And they were, I mean, he had, no, I won't go into all the details, but um, I was not in good shape. Thank God I recovered. Um, but he had sent me an email um, like six weeks before uh, saying that he, um, checking in on how I was doing and hopefully I was doing okay. He had known all about the accident. We had talked a lot and he had said all the things he was doing in Hawaii and he had landed large was the uh, phraseology he used. I landed large. And six weeks after that email, I found out that he had killed himself. Um, it haunts me to this day. It uh, is a painful thing. So yeah, I love me some Wyatt. Uh, uh, the my latest grandson was within a hair of being named Wyatt, not because of me, just because of the ethos, I guess. Um, so yeah, I love him. And uh, yeah, very very tragic story. I found out about Wyatt's uh, Wyatt's death uh, through Harriet, his ex-wife, and uh, yeah, very tragic. Um, I um, I enjoyed my time when he was, I think he was one of the guys who was examining his hairline a lot during the making of the Borky's movies. Uh, yeah, we he, all were. We all were. You all were. Um, uh, Roger Wilson. Roger. Um, Roger was uh, coming from the Lompoc region of California. I had never met anyone like Roger in my life. Um, he and his sister uh, 
were heirs to the largest oil refinery in North America. So when he was working on Porky's, he was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. And, um, and he was gorgeous and he had a great body and women just were like, he was dating every beautiful woman you've ever seen from the 80s, Roger had a relationship with her, <laughs> I'm convinced. Um, one of the greatest moments of my life is I had, al I had always had a crush on um, Diane Lane after seeing a, um, a little romance. And, and I was, you know, 11 year old boy and I'd always have these dreams of a girl in the fog and holding hands and her name was, was Faith or Hope. Anyway, when I saw a little romance, um, he, he, uh, she looked exactly like my dream. And so I got to spend, she was dating Roger for a while and one, two and a half hour period, uh, we got to have a drink together because Roger was talking with other people. Anyway, <laughs> I digress, but that's not the best thing that ever happened. There are two things that Roger owns me for the rest of his life. One is that he had a cigar boat <laughs> because he could. And he said, let's go, let's go uh, out and we'll go, you know, and we, we found some lovely young ladies, uh, not found them, we had known them and we went out on the boat with them. And uh, we had a perfect evening driving around the intercoastal waterway, going to various bars where you just pull up in your boat. And then we wound up skinny dipping during a, the, a lunar eclipse off of Miami Beach. That's a fond memory, but doesn't compare to the memory of many years later, I, well, actually not that long after, I brought my parents with some of the money that I had made from Porky's, I brought them to, to New York for the first time. As I said, my blue collar dad, he'd never been anywhere. So I got to take him to Arlington Cemetery because he was a big patriot. And I got to take them both to Manhattan. And my mother had wanted, she was a huge uh, Mickey Rooney fan and a huge Gregory Hines fan. And so at the time, Mickey Rooney in New York was doing Sugar Babies and Gregory Hines was doing Sophisticated Lady. So I call Roger because I know that he knows everyone and knows anything. And he was living with his sister at the Dakota at the time. Oh and my I goodness. Said, I said, Roger, um, I, I don't know. Can you help me out? I can't. I've been trying to get tickets to the shows. Well, what shows? I said, well, Sugar Babies. And that's a little easier. But but uh, Sophisticated Ladies, you could not get a seat. It was the hottest show in New York for many, many years. And he said, oh, OK. I, yeah, I know some people. I'll, I'll take care of it. I said, oh, God, thank you, Raj. Thanks. Thanks. And um, I said, what, what, what am I, just tell me what I owe you. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're fine. So I go to the, um, we take her, my mom and my dad to the Mickey Rooney Sugar Babies. I go to the will call and I say, I think you're holding some tickets for me. And I have my credit card in hand uh, for uh, Mark Harrier, there's three. And he said, oh yes, Mr. Harrier, yes, yes, they're right here. I said, okay, what are you? Oh, nothing. And so I thought they had been comped, but no, he turns out he had paid for them. And they were literally front row center. So Holy when, moly. When the, when the curtain came up and Mickey Rooney's standing there, literally three feet maybe from my mother, 
she slapped my knee, and I think I still have a mark there from how excited <laughs> she was. And then we went to uh, the next night. We went to see sophisticated ladies. Those were lousy seats. They were sixth row, a little left of center. But he had also <laughs> paid for those. So he owns me forever because he made my mother and my parents and me uh, special, special memories. So yeah, I love me some Roger. That's there are great. stories I won't tell you, but those are two I can. No, those are great stories. What about Cyril? Cyril O'Reilly. Cyril. Cyril. Um, we still talk. Um, we've gotten a little um, feisty with each other because as liberal as I am, I started as a Republican. Uh, and I was a Republican, actually, when we were doing the Porky's movies. But over the years, I can't even conceive of being a Republican ever again. I apologize to you who are still there, but it's just not where I am. But uh, Cyril is a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, and he became a Bernie guy. And so we would... I thought we were on the same page, but he would get mad at me because I wasn't a Bernie guy. I was like, no, I want to win an election. I, you know, it's like, so, but um, he always, I was, uh, I was always the, I was like my role in the movie, Offset, and, and also at the house. These, these guys were much wilder than I was, and I was the blue collar boy and was like, no, we don't do this like this. No, we don't leave this as a mess. No, we don't, you know, I was like the raison d'etre offset like I was onset. I was the good boy onset, I was the good boy offset. Cyril was a little wilder, and, and so he was always um, pointing that out to me like I was somehow judging him, which I never was, but anyway. But I'm still, uh, I still love Cyril and, and, and we still talk. That's great to know. Uh, and I think as I recall, didn't he either date or marry the makeup artist? Oh, on yes, uh, Valley. She, um, yes, he did. Uh, she was and is, and I, I'm sure always will be delightful. Yeah, she was wonderful. Yes, and he did wind up marrying her. Yeah. Yes, I, I do remember that. Talk yeah. a little bit about Tony Ganios. <laughs> um, well, this is a podcast. It's hard to talk about Tony without expletives. Um, am I allowed <laughs> full reign? Or... I, I, I feel that, you know, this is the 21st century. If you got to cuss, you got to cuss. All right. Well, with Tony... Okay, Tony um, remains a dear uh, friend. Uh, one thing about uh, all of us living together is I really do think that the movie of us as what was happening living together was at least as interesting and as funny as what was happening on camera. Tony, um, so many stories, um, he was who he looks like. He remains the most powerful human being I have ever personally known. He was a world-class power lifter when we were filming Porky's One, actually throughout the whole thing. 
he and powerlifting, if I get this, if I can remember correctly, there's three separate lifts. It's a deadlift, it's a bench press, and whatever, a, a jerk pull and jerk where you put it over your head. It, it's three things, three separate things. Um, he had a combined uh, three of those three lifts of 1,575 pounds. Oh my God. Meaning that each lift he would do over 500 pounds. Bench press, deadlift, and um, uh, what is it called where you stick it up over your head? What the hell is that called? Anyway, he was stronger than anything. He uh, was half Greek, he still is half Greek, half Italian. Uh, so he had jet black hair and alabaster skin. And uh, one story that will sum up, uh, or a couple, I don't know how much time we have. But um, one story that sums up everything is that we were having a party at this house that we all lived in. And uh, four or five of us lived in the main house. And then the garage had been converted into a sort of a separate bathroom and large bedroom where Cyril and Tony lived. We called it the cave because it was sort of, you could, you could enter the main house through Boyd and my closet through that bedroom. They had somehow made a, a stairway that came out that closet, but mostly it was separate from the house. Anyway, we're having this big party and it is packed with people and uh, we're all having a good time. And Tony was taking a shower down in the cave, which if you know Tony, the fact that he's taken a shower during a party is not unusual at all. He would not have had anything to do with it. It was like, yeah, this is not my thing. So um, Cyril had found a potential uh, companionship and so he wanted to go to this girl's house and leave the party with her but he couldn't uh, do that because his car was blocked in we had this big uh, driveway and, and it was all packed with cars his car was blocked in by a Ford Granada so he goes to the cave where Tony is taking a shower and he says hey Tony 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 um I, and then Tony's like going what what the fuck what and he says listen I need you to do something well, what the fuck I'm taking a shower what the fuck do you need me to do and he says Tony I need you to move this car and he says what do you don't have the keys what the fuck and he says no no I don't have, I don't know whose car it is it's just blocking me in and I can't get out and I need you to move it he says, oh, what? And he, he finally comes out and he has just this towel wrapped around him and he's gleaming wet and his hair is slicked back and he looks like this, a marble statue, a Greek statue, only if you've, if you've seen the Reacher series now, um, this guy, he looked like this guy that's on the Reacher series, just powerful, huge man. And we had already seen his feats of strength before. I could go in those stories for hours. But anyway, Tony says, well, 
But what? I, am I some fucking gorilla? Am I am I here to amuse you with my feats of strength? What the fuck? I'm going to move a car for you? And Cyril's going, I'm just, hey, give, give me a break. And so Tony just starts screaming and swearing at him. And he, and he grabs, he says, what, is this what you're looking for? And he gets behind the bumper, the back bumper of this Granada, and he deadlifts it up and he pivots it about four feet and then drops it and there's dust. He says, is this, is, is this good? Am, am I moving it enough for you? And he gets and squats again and, it, and nothing but a towel and he deadlifts it and he pivots it again. He pivoted that entire car in about five lifts, uh, 180 degrees. And he's saying, so fuck you. What am I, King Kong? Fuck you, Cyril. Fuck you. <laughs> and, and he's screaming at him as Cyril and the girl calmly get in his car and drive off. Um, that was just one of the many wonderful Ganyo stories. That's a great story, Mark. That's, that's a classic. Um, yeah. Tell me about... Um, Bob Clark's style of directing. I mean, I, having worked with them, and for those of you who are listening, um, I was assigned by uh, Melvin Simon Productions to be the unit publicist on Porky's 2. So I got a chance to work on, on the set with the guys on 2. But I'm, I'm curious what your impression of Clark was. Um. Uh, I was uh, lucky uh, that I was cast by him because not only did uh, I wind up doing the three Porky's movies, but he was involved in a producing a feature film called Popcorn that uh, he had seen a short I had directed and basically when they needed to replace um, the original director, he called me and said, hey, can you help me out? And so I was able to direct a feature film as well, thanks to Bob Clark. Um, he, was, uh, he was an interesting guy. He was, um, body is not the right word. I mean, he would go for, dick jokes he would go for the lowest kind of joke and yet he could talk about Moliere and he could talk about you know he was he was very well read and very so he was from South Florida and had all of that kind of good old boy thing about him and yet he was a very sophisticated guy and he was both in equal measure, which was fascinating, always fascinating to me. Um, another hideous, tragic story. Um, we had a, we would have a weekly poker game at his uh, house in the Pacific Palisades, well, his apartment in the Pacific Palisades, right across the street from Gladstone's. And um, we come, pretty much every week and we wouldn't always come every week, but there'd be enough of us and, and, and um, we'd play poker with him and that poker game would go to like, um, I don't know, one, two in the morning and then we'd all stumble home. Um, and one night we had played poker and we all said goodbye. And I found out later that he was taking Ariel, his son home 
and was hit head on by a drunk driver. Um, and they were both killed instantly. And horrible, uh, horrible tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yet another. Um, One of the things I liked about Porky's in amidst all the uh, the mayhem and craziness, uh, there's a an element of dealing with 1950s flavored anti-Semitism epitomized by Scott Columbia's character, Brian Schwartz, and uh, his run-in with Cyril's character's father, played by Wayne Maunder. Um, I thought, I thought that there was a touch of class for that element of the film. Absolutely, and that was the interesting part of Bob is that he, understood and could speak very uh, 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 succinctly good old boy, but he wasn't a good old boy when it came down to it. And that was a big part of, of that first one. And the second one was about the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, you know, Seminole Indians uh, being, uh, you know, vilified and stuff. And, and it wasn't just the first one. All of all the the two that Bob did was about you know fighting racism uh, where it reared its ugly head. And God knows to this day, and I'm sorry I'm saying this, but there's still elements in uh, South Florida, in Florida, in general, um, and the rest of America actually, and the world itself, and the world um, itself. The cat casting in, in the in well in all the movies was really on target, but the first one is filled with interesting characters. I have to say, having worked on two with you guys and spending a little time with Chuck Mitchell, he was a he was a character and a half. Yes, yeah, we um, poor Chuck. We uh, partly because it was the movie, but. Partly because Chuck was a, <laughs> he was a piece of work. We uh, did not shrink from tormenting him on and off the set. That was, uh, that was sort of like, <laughs> became a <coughs> fair game. But yeah. Uh, Chuck, um, for those of you listening, uh, Chuck, uh, Marcus, and we're talking about Chuck Mitchell, who plays Porky, who, who owns in the story, owns this, uh, this uh, bar strip club uh, on the Everglades, and of course becomes the uh, centerpiece of his ongoing battle with the dirty half dozen. Uh, speaking of locations, it, it's funny because I was reading up on the film recently, and I think they incorrectly said that Porky's one was shot in Canada, which would be, of course we don't we know is not false. Uh, <laughs> they don't have mosquitoes that big in Canada. Either. They don't have mosquitoes. The um, the uh, Porky's nightclub, where was that built? Um, in South Florida. I mean, we the first movie, we were living on Miami Beach. And so all of the locations were in and around Miami. Um, I think we might have gone into the um, edges of the um, swamps for... Um, where they they built the um, not just Porky's but also the police station uh, that uh, Alex Karras was the chief of. Those were out in the Everglades, I think. 
um, or something very much like the Everglades because it was swampy and uh, a lot of water. And yeah, so we felt, you know, it was all shot on location in South Florida. And then uh, the, um, the uh, diner where you, is your primary hangout, as I recall, was right there on uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale. Is that Angel Beach? Uh, or yeah, Angel that, Beach was the that would make sense because it's Angel Beach High School. I know it was in Fort Lauderdale. I was right on the beach. And we uh, spent a lot of time there at that location on various... Uh, right, right. Now, the movie comes out in um, November 82, actually November 81. And were you prepared for the reaction? To, well, actually, let's back up a little bit. Uh, you finish shooting, they go into post, and then eventually you get to see the movie. Uh, do you remember where you saw it first? You would think I would. It would have been in Los Angeles. Uh, probably at Fox Studios. Yeah, I'm sure it was at Fox. We saw a screening of it. And they had test screenings. And some of the other guys would speak more to that. There was a famous one in San Diego that I didn't go to. But I think Dan and Wyatt both went to that one. And they knew by the audience, audience reaction there that it was like, holy cow. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so on the one hand, and this is uh, kudos to Wyatt, we were approached by Bob about five weeks into the filming. We were, we were contracted to shoot for 11 weeks. And uh, the, it, you know, financing via what it was and stuff, and he, and he basically said, we can only do this we only have enough budget to do this for eight weeks. So we're going to film this in eight weeks. And I know we've contracted you for 11, but I'm going to ask you to give up those last three weeks. And in return, I will give you collectively, the six of us, one point of the net profits. Um, and we're like, well, and, and some of the guys are like, oh, this is BS. This is BS. And you never get any money from net profits. You never get any money. I didn't know anything. I'm the son of a landfill operator. So I was just happy to be getting paid what I was getting plus per diem. I was like, I, I don't care. Yeah, no, it's all cake to me. Um, it's more money I was making in the theater. And anyway, Wyatt said, no, no, no. I think this is going to be a big thing. I think, I think this is a gift to us. I think we do this right now. We don't even argue about it. I think we just do it. So we all got a six of a point. And it wound up being worth about 10 times what they paid us on the, the, the movie itself. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, because they, it made some, it was the number most profitable comedy of all time for many years. Oh it yeah, no, I, I remember, yeah. I remember yeah. the full page ads in Variety saying over a hundred million dollars, which a comedy had never reached. Yeah, no, it was $185 million worldwide. On my honeymoon, I was in London and I would pull up in the tube and the doors would open, my picture would be there. We'd be in Leicester Square waiting to see, um, you know, some play there. And there was a four-story billboard of Dan Wyatt and I, you know, looking through the uh, peephole. So it was just like, 
and uh, I was in I was in the hottest show in in Manhattan at the time it was off Broadway called Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All to You. Right. Great, great play. I had a great role. It was just a delight. They would be lined up around the block to come in to see this play, and then we'd be done at like 11, 11.30 at night. I'd walk into Times Square, and they would be lined up around the block to see Porky's. I, uh, I was blown away, but I knew at the time, it will never, ever be better for me in my life than this, so I better acknowledge it and enjoy it and revel in it, which I did. So, yeah, I had no idea it was going to be like that. I had no idea. I would get pictures from my friends from around the world in Spain and Czechoslovakia uh, uh, at the time, Czechoslovakia and, and stuff. It's like my picture would be on billboards, you know, in Spanish. And, you know, it was just it was a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, it was um, it was uh, certainly after many years in Hollywood of censorship and all sorts of, uh, you know, government bodies supervising the distribution of films by the by the early 80s uh that had long been gone and of course uh films that started to test the waters uh enormously so and um so how long was it before bob came to you and said we're going to do two uh don't remember exactly but i don't think it was too long um, because I we I had wrapped up three and I was thirty years old, so it had to have been within a year or so, not even, maybe not even a year, uh, that we had done two, and then the third one came. Uh, yeah, uh, we had filmed all three of them. I was twenty-seven when I did the first one, thirty when I did the last one. So within three years, we had done th those three movies. So when it came to Porky's two, the next day. Did you guys move in together again? But I would think that maybe not. <laughs> no, we didn't. We all knew each other. We all uh, loved each other. We didn't have to do that again. Although Dan and I remained roommates through all three movies. Ah, uh, got it, uh, got it. We would get a, a, a suite at wherever, we, you know, hotel one time. We, the second movie, we stayed at the Jockey Club uh, on the... In a coastal waterway, and then on the third one, Dan and I had the uh, what would you call it? The cottage, the compound, the suite. We were at the Key Biscayne uh, Resort on Key Biscayne, and Dan and I lived in the. Um, There's a plaque on the door saying that this is where uh, John Kennedy came to meet with. Uh, Richard Nixon after Nixon had lost the election to sort of bury the hatchet and stuff. So we lived in me being a political guy. That was the most thrilling to me is we were living in where Kennedy and Nixon, you know, met after the election and B.B. Rebozo. They all came down. Uh, Kennedy came down to uh, uh, Nixon's neck of the woods to, to bury the hatchet. So that was pretty cool. And then when I was assigned to Porky's 2 as publicist, I my apartment uh, for that summer of 82 was on Key Biscayne. So I remember going, uh, you know, going across the causeway into Miami yeah. every day and yeah, uh, just a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, you told me uh, recently that uh, you are involved in a big project now. You're refur refurbishing that Lompoc Theater? Yes, thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's, um, as I mentioned earlier, I saw the movie Music Man in that very theater. And it inspired me to dream and, and seek to become an actor. And I wound up doing so much better than I ever, ever, ever could have even dreamt of doing. And now the theater is closed and run down and they're the kids that live there now and they're the same proud blue collar working class kids that I was. Um, they don't have that theater to be inspired by. They don't have, the California school system was once the envy of the world, a public school system. Now after Proposition 13 and other things, it's not. And so there aren't arts in the school, not just in California, but in many places around the country uh, that I enjoyed and grew up with and, and could dream with and get training from. So I have devoted this last part of uh, where my career into trying to renovate this theater. Uh, now, my, now, Mark, is, is, that a, is that a movie theater or a legitimate theater? It was both. It was built in 1927. It was a vaudeville house and a movie theater. Uh, this was before uh, the talkies. The talkies came in and Lompoc was one of the first that actually had uh, talking pictures. And um, it was uh, Cecil D. B. DeMille sent telegrams because we're only two and a half hours out of L.A. And at the time it was uh, state of the art. So it was a big deal for the townspeople, and it will be a big deal again when we're able to renovate it. Uh, and you're going to renov renovate it as a uh, both uh, uh, both legitimate and movie? Yep. Uh, I have fond memories of going to Saturday matinees there. I can't tell you how many people, and especially um, elderly women, come up to me and say my first kiss was there. And, and it's, it's an icon for the town. The entire town uh, will benefit from its uh, restoration. And so um, we're making some good progress and uh, I will look forward to the day we cut that ribbon. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, uh, we could talk about Porky's, uh, a lot of Porky's. Uh, yeah. you know. uh, there, I haven't even, uh, there are a lot more stories. <laughs> but Gagno's stories alone could take five hours. <laughs> But just and just just remembering my enjoyment not only of working on the movie but seeing the movies it's just a lot of fun it's uh it is body uh, if you're gonna revisit the Porky's trilogy you're you're uh, gonna see things that are outrageous and not very um, uh, PC these days but it, just think back to a time when uh, just being outrageous was just a lot of fun. Um, and I'm so glad you were a part of that. Well, I was too. And uh, it, it, to this day, it, the friendships um, have been just wonderful. And, and uh, it opened a lot of doors for me. And it was, it was pretty special. Well, thank you, Mark. And everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, once again, we're celebrating the Porky's films tonight with, with Mark Harrier, who was very much a part of that and played a character named Billy McCarty and is very much visible in all three films as one of the Angel Beach 
dirty half dozen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And if you want to see just how old and fat a man can get, watch Bosch. Uh, I'm I'm on the series Bosch uh, seasons five, six, and seven as the police captain Cooper, and I don't look very much like Billy from back in the day, <laughs> but it's a great series. It's a great show. I highly recommend it, and um, it's been great talking with you, man. Uh, <laughs> stay stay safe up there, and and uh, be well, and we'll stay in touch. Okay, thank you. <laughs>